Robots Radio. Games. Lore. Stories. Community. Just press play. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome, weary traveler. Need a short rest? Oh, I see. They said you'd be showing up about now. Come on, through the portal. Best not keep the Lord Mistress and Lord Master waiting. You know how they get. Robots Radio presents The Dungeons and Dragons Lorecast. The best way for everyone from experienced dungeon masters to those curious about D&D to learn more about the worlds, creatures, and lore of Dungeons & Dragons. Hello and welcome to the Dungeons & Dragons Lorecast. My name is Sergio and this week we are continuing our Planescape coverage. Planescape! coming out in less than a month i am beyond excited i had a very good friend of mine a friend of of several decades a friend that i've known since my youth since my my wild and capricious youth who messaged me uh with a polygon article about about the upcoming planescape fifth edition and he's like i'm sure you already knew about this but just in case and i'm like i do you do you know me do you not know me that that well i thought i thought we were like brothers so uh, time will tell if that friendship remains, um, but what will always remain is my love for Planescape. And so this week we are going to discuss the planes of law, the lawful planes within the D&D multiverse. We're going to be discussing Arcadia. We're going to be discussing Mechanis. I've had several uh, requests for Mechanis, as well as... Asheron and of course Celestia. We will, however, be skipping Bator uh, simply because we covered every layer of Bator, all the nine hells, pretty extensively during our uh, Hotter Than the Nine Hells series. So, not a whole lot left to be said about Bator. However, the Patreon Plus installment for this episode, which will be out next week exclusively on patreon.com slash D&D Lorecast, will dig into the lore behind the Dark Eight of Bator, the Dark Eight of who, uh, who I, w- I don't want to necessarily say control because as we all know, Asmodeus, uh, even though he doesn't have direct control of anything beyond Nessus, um, he essentially controls everything going on in a um, and by proxy. So, without further ado, let's just go ahead 
and jump into it. Let's go ahead and start with Arcadia. This is a quote from an Arcadian petitioner. Birds in the forests, flowers in the meadows, and everything in its place. Why argue with perfection? So Arcadia is a plain of rolling fields with gently sloped valleys. Well-ordered orchards produce fruit of the perfect size and texture. Everything here works toward the common good, and it's a flawless form of existence. In the land of perfect good, nothing intrudes on the harmony. At least it better not, or it's you know going to have to pay the price. Because um, anyone of a chaotic or evil persuasion, you know, would want to think twice before coming to Arcadia, you know, because the people here are devoted to seeking the greatest good for the greatest number, you know, and they tend to be more than just a little fanatic in their pursuit of happiness and rightness. Uh, They don't, so they don't take kindly to folks coming here who don't share their views and they often express this feeling kind of forcefully. Uh, So there are three layers to Arcadia, but most people don't get past the first. The Ein Harayer, or the petitioner protectors, make sure that chaotic and evil folk don't make it any further beyond the first layer. Um, And of course, this makes everyone kind of all the more curious about what they're hiding. And thus, that increases the security of the Ein Harayer um, that are devoted to patrolling the plane. It's kind of a, you know, chicken or an egg sort of thing. Like, did the security come first? Did the paranoia uh, inspire the security? So, you know, that, regardless, it's said, you know, mostly by the folks who live here, by the inhabitants, that everything in Arcadia is as perfect as it can be, neither as strictly regimented as Mechanis nor as devoted to the perfection of the individual as Mount Celestia. Well, that's not entirely true, because there is a dark underside to the plane that the inhabitants are pretty much blind to, mostly because they are an indirect part of it. They're so convinced of their own rightness that they can't see their flaws, for better or worse, And this has proven a problem for them time and time again. In short, the plane itself is perfect. It's the people who are the problem. To quote, I was about to say late, great, but um, if you've seen Clerks 3, you know that it's kind of the opposite is true. Um, To quote Randall Graves, this job would be great if it wasn't for the effing customers. All right, so the layers, us Possible Clerks 3 spoilers as well. Uh, It's uh, said there are three layers to Arcadia. Like I said, most people don't get past the first. But unlike most of the other upper planes, this one slopes downward through the layers so that the third layer, or at least where the third layer used to be, and we'll get to that, uh, is hidden in the fogs at the bottom of a great valley. And like I said, the dark of it is that there are really only two layers now. But like I said, we'll get to that. So the first layer, Abelio. Abelio. You have to say that with the the Italian hand. Uh, It's the first of the layers. It's largely flat. And though there are mountains and hills spread across the layer in certain patterns, um, like I said, it's mostly flatland. 
there are forests and fields as well as lakes and streams. Uh, it's a layer of plenty with everything. Even the common beasts are dedicated to providing for the common good. In fact, there is nothing native here that doesn't contribute to making this place a perfect place of uh, to making this layer a place of perfection and peace. The fields and the forests all bear as much fruit as possible, and the beasts don't usually, you know, seem all that interested in attacking someone. You know, preferring to leave travelers alone. Of course, you know there are the planers who have moved here. And the beans that seek to take pieces of Arcadia for themselves, they're the ones who make this a chancy place to live. You know, the ones who have um, disrupted the harmony of Abelio, at least in a small way. And it's commonly thought that they're the ones who taught the petitioners of this lair to be as paranoid as they are now. So, uh, one locale on Abelio is the realm of Marduk. AKA the binder of dragons, Marduk controls this realm entirely. He's got four eyes, four ears, and a mouth that shoots flames when he speaks. My favorite part about that is that it sounds like a child made that up. Uh, and I love it. I absolutely, I mean, if I asked a kid, like a four year old to make up a D&D monster for me and he said it was a dragon with four eyes and four ears and a mouth that shoots flames when he talks, I'd be like, that's that's my new big bad. Thank you so much. All right, so it's said that he and Tiamat, the lady of dragonkind, each emerge from their lairs every 100 years to wage war on each other, which is, I, I love this, that the only time they leave the house is to fight one another. Um, it's got a real um, same time next year sort of vibe to it. Um, if you get that reference, you are probably older than me. Um, so they wage war on each other every hundred years to determine who will hold the upper hand for the next century. Uh, because of Marduk's status, all dragons and dragon kin are forbidden to enter the realm. And those that do are hunted until they're found. Good dragons are ejected while neutral and evil dragons are killed on the spot. And lawful good dragons are invited to leave politely, while chaotic and neutral good dragons are removed forcefully. Uh, insert, you know, Jazzy Jeff, ah, getting thrown out the front door by Uncle Phil in the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air GIF here. Uh, this is relatively easy as a dragon actually has no magic in uh, in the realm and can only attack with its, you know, natural weapons, with its teeth, its wings, claw, tail can't actually do any of the cool, fun dragon stuff that it normally can do. So, so it's kind of easy to slay a dragon if you're on a bellio. So the second layer, Buxinus, is a mustering ground where forces of Arcadia gather their might for yet another attempt to take back the third layer. We've been hinting at that throughout, the, throughout our discussion of Arcadia. Buxinus is well-guarded by the aforementioned Ein Harrier, uh, who send anyone without authorization or who can't immediately explain their presence back to the first layer uh, in just a little more pain than they left it. The faction of the Harmonium has its, quote, training camps here. Uh, they've been importing barrels of the curative waters of, from the city of Imperia 
on Mount Celestia in an attempt to cleanse the minds of their recruits. And like I said, we'll we'll, we'll discuss that once we get to Celestia. Uh, though it's not yet proven effective, they're willing to do anything to convert everyone they can. Um, and you may be asking, like, well, well what recruits are they are, are they recruiting? Well, uh, the Harmonians known for harsh methods and stern love, uh, but this time they've gone a little too far. Uh, they've been stealing, they've been kidnapping, they've been absconding with those of chaotic and neutral alignments to try to modify their mindsets, trying to see if it's possible to change a naturally chaotic creature to a lawful mindset. And they've established camps throughout Buxinus and the third layer before it disappeared. Again, we'll get to that. Just calm down. Uh, to regulate the lives of the kidnapped chaotics by placing these creatures on a strict regimen of scheduling, allowing them little time for fancy and their own pursuits. The Harmonian hopes to gain back the ground they've lost to Mechanus. Of course, they've only got the greater good in mind, right? This is for the greater good. Unfortunately, what they can't, what it's either, it, it's phrased what they don't know, but what I truly believe is what they don't want to believe is that their pursuit of the quote-unquote greater good is what drove the third layer away from Arcadia in the first place. You know, their methods of securing this good are so draconian that the land literally pulled away from the plane of good toward a more evil one, you know, in that neutrality contains more evil than good in that sense. You know, they haven't realized this. And so because of this, you know, they don't understand that that's the issue. They've only stepped up their efforts to gain new recruits. You know, they watch these good creatures wither and die away from their homes and simply go out and get more not realizing they're helping to destroy the plane. Um, a location here, the realm of uh, Azuth, the Lord of Mages from the Forgotten Realms is located here. And as a demi-power, uh, the realm is not exactly huge, you guys, you would think, you know, but it's suitable for his purposes. And what are his purposes? No one knows. But Azuth's not complaining about his realm size, so I guess, you know, it doesn't really matter. Uh, the only town in the realm is Mage's Rest and is a haven for anyone who studies the art and an excellent place for someone to learn more about it, to learn more about magic. The whole city has got this air of ritual and mystery, the intangible something that got so many people involved in magic in the first place. And it's not unheard of for powerful mages to take an apprentice here, and it's a place for the older ones to learn as well. You know, there's no dearth of learning here for Azuth spreads his knowledge liberally among his chosen worshippers. The realm of Heliopolis is split into th three parts and shared by Ra, Isis, Osiris, and Horus. Burning sand underneath a scorching sun giving way to the cool of evening and the songs of nature. The stirring beneath the sands might not be life, but at least it's not evil. The blazing sun is set above everything, but there's rest and relaxation to be had here. Since Ra's purview includes destroying the undead, and Osiris is the protector of the dead and, and non-destructive undead, the two don't exactly see eye to eye on how undead should be handled, obviously. Um, 
Osiris and Isis are married, so their realms often overlap, but each still has a distinct influence. And since Ra is the great-grandfather of both of these two, he can enter their realms with impunity if he so desires. Still, each of the three usually respects the dominion of the others and awaits permission to enter the other's realms. Horus travels all three realms since he's related to all the gods, and also because he's a little bit too chaotic to hold a realm of his own. Instead, he wanders Heliopolis and avenges those who need avenging. So... Horus is basically Batman, it seems like, which, you know what, I'm here for. All right, now you've been waiting nearly 15 minutes to hear about this third layer of Arcadia and what's going on with it. Let's talk Nemesis. So Nemesis technically no longer exists as it's transmigrated to Mechanis, where the governors and the Modrons keep a close eye on it. It's still got some good tendencies, but the constant attempts by the Harmonium and others to take it back are so often flavored with evil and selfishness that the layer isn't in any danger of returning anytime soon. Which leads us right into Mechanus. Obey the law and all else follows. Pentadrone 58 of the First Engineers. So, as predictable as the drip of a water clock and as subtle as a fleeting breeze, Mechanus is a place of law and logic, of cold passions and premeditated plans. Though it's true that the clockwork universe is logical and ordered, it's just as true that the order of certain people and places on the plane remains secret to anyone who's not a native. After all, some things are just too complex for a mortal to understand. Still, that doesn't keep some from trying. Some lawful types say that understanding the gears yields an understanding of the multiverse, while the chaotics naturally seek ways to disrupt the cogs and bring disorder and anarchy to the supreme plane of law. Some claim that Mechanus is boring AF. That the Supreme of Laws got to be one of the most boring places in the multiverse, worse even than Mount Celestia is reputed to be for those whose inclinations don't tend toward law or good. They claim that any place that requires law is plainly a place completely devoid of pleasure. There's not many physical challenges. You know, the challenges are more mental and spiritual. And you know, the natives aren't as unfriendly or uplifting as they are on other planes. They're just kind of there. You know, that's what the Plains detractors say. It's not the place anybody would want to visit. But it's obvious that those who say that have never been to the Plain of Mechanus. Just because it's the Plain of Ultimate Law doesn't mean it's a static form, you know, held forever in tormenting boredom. Mechanus, like the rest of the Outer Plains, has its share of excitement hidden within the giant gears. Rogue Modrons, Agents of Chaos, and more lurk in the cogs, but these are minor players when compared to the machinations of the higher-ups in the plane. It's as straightforward as one could want, and as subtle, too. Every kind of law is tucked away here, from the plain as day to the twisted paths of logic so favored by fiends. The place compels people to learn of the hidden paths of law, teaching them to look for law in chaos. Because they say there's a law in everything. 
Physically, Mechanus is a huge collection of gears, cogs, and pulleys linked together. There's no sun, no moon, no stars, only gears turning and clicking eternally around each other, uh, stretching off into the inky blackness for as far as any eye can see, and much, much farther, too. Some think that the gears are just for show, as anything truly lawful can't change, but they don't understand law doesn't mean static. All it means is order and orderly movement. It's said that there are spirits who watch over the gears and make sure everything turns properly. Most people haven't seen them, but they're there, much like the dryads in the trees, protecting their gears from fools and the constant erosion of entropy. One popular theory about the gears is that they are the machinery of the multiverse. Without their movement, natural law as it's known in the multiverse would cease to exist. Time would stop. No science or research would have any meaning. And chaos unbounded, by law, would reign in every reality. Then again, the gears might not have any significance at all, except to serve as a visual symbol of absolute law. Uh, before we get to the locals, let's talk about the Modrons. Um, as far as Planescape goes, one of the most um, iconic images is the Monodrone. It kind of looks like a steampunk Mike Wazowski. Uh, so I'm, <laughs> I tickled myself pink when I figured that one out. Uh, but it's um, they're like robots of differing kinds, as the Beatezu are to Bator. So are the Modrons to Mechanus. Rumor has it it's uh, that they're the keepers of the plane, the maintainers of the gears, and the polishers of the cogs. There is some speculation they are descended from insectile intelligences, resulting in this incredible hive mind. Modrons don't care about good or evil. All they care about are order and law. And so the best way to describe it is that their good is order, and their evil is chaos. There's 15 divisions of them, 14 of which uh, are even remotely comprehensible to normal minds. Uh, and the 15th is Primus, overlord of all Modrons, and essentially a greater power, although he can be killed. Uh, he runs the show. He assigning duties for the lower castes to perform. Uh, and Modrons can only communicate with the cast immediately uh, above or below them. So every higher-ranking Modron is sure to have an inferior around to perform some kind of manual labor or to act as a messenger. The system is such that there's really no point in trying to speak to a Modron further than one cast away, because uh, for those, those two creatures could in no way understand each other. A Modron from the 13th Division could in no way understand a Modron from the 3rd. Oh, and the Great March, of course. The Great March, uh, once every cycle, that's that's when all the cogs of Mechanus complete one full turn, which is about 17 years in regular time. The Modrons marshal a vast army and march forth from Mechanus to tour the Outer Plains, also known as the Great Ring. Uh, they pass through the towns, through the layers of all the plains, often suffering huge losses along the way. And these attacks don't always take place in the lower planes, you know, because the Mojons have no compunction about walking right over those who are who are in their way in the upper planes. Uh, by the time this force makes it back, 
to Mechanus, there's often only a few of them left, and they troop straight into their superiors to report. What they say is secret and the subject of serious speculation. Some say it's a progress report on the Modron invasion. Others say it's a report on the state of the multiverse. Whatever the case, it's unknowable. So the layers of Mechanus. Well, there are theoretically an infinite number of layers, and theoretically none. The disks that make up the plane all interlock so that there's there's no part of the plane that is not connected to some other part. Since all the cogs are linked, there are few boundaries that one can see, though a body can certainly feel them. So in reality, Mechanus is just one big plane all of it able to be visited without the hubbub associated with visiting other planes. You know, there, there isn't a place someone can't get into in Mechanus if they're determined enough. And of course, that determination often means a body's going to be filling out a lot of paperwork and waiting in a number of lines, sweating their way through the labyrinthine portal, and maybe looking for the place for years. Still, with persistence, they'll eventually gain access to the place they're looking for. Some say that the best way to travel through Mechanus is the Labyrinthine portal, a maze of portals and conduits that link the great cogs together. You know, when there's no obvious way to reach a cog, one is going to have to find the piece of the labyrinth that connects to that cog. Rumor has it that there's a map in the realm of Regulus, the home of the Modron Power Primus, but of course, to get there, you've got to get through the army of Modrons wandering the area uh, and find a way to the Great Display. After that, one might understand the way through the labyrinth, but it's not likely because it isn't just some big maze with twisty walls and a minotaur in the center of it. It's more of a mental construct based on the way body travels through the portals that compose the maze. If you go in one side of a portal, you end up in one place. And then if you go in the other side, you wind up someplace else. So if a body goes through the right pattern, through the right portals, in the right way, you might find yourself in a place where that portal just doesn't ordinarily go. Of course, this entails following directions exactly with no variation whatsoever from the original plan. Even the slightest variation can ruin the whole point of traveling through the portal, and that might be the reason why only Modrons and other similarly-minded similarly creatures can use a labyrinth with total certainty. So a couple of locations, the Fortress of Disciplined Enlightenment. This is ruled by the leader of the Fraternity of Order, Lady Nancias Garabutos, always adhering to the letter of the law laid down before her. The Fraternity of Order, uh, aka the Governors, are a, plain, uh, a group of planers who believe that the universe is run by laws, and anyone who can know these laws and exploit the loopholes in them will learn how to rule the universe. So Garabutos tries to be true to the spirit of the law, finding loopholes in the old laws to use and closing those that she can't exploit. 
Oh, and and by the way, since the name is kind of a mouthful, the Fortress of Discipline and Enlightenment, you know, most people just call it the Fortress. There are nine sections, none of which overlap, but all still work uh, as a harmonious whole, making this an organized hive with each specialty contributing to a greater cause. The libraries extending far underneath the fortress are the focal point of the keep and almost always inhabited, plenty wanting to learn as much as possible about the law. I mean, they contain collections of laws all the way from Bator to Baldur's Gate and just about everywhere in between. Now, Nemasis, the thin line between neutrality and good, is one easily crossed. After being pulled into Mechanus, Nemasis loses its powers and realms. After all, there's no way to make a power go where it doesn't want to go. But there are still some Arcadian petitioners here. They've gone underground, digging warrens all the way down to the cog to keep the Modrons and governors confused. Anyone wandering this realm is likely to encounter either A, a hand full of rebel petitioners, or B, a patrol of the law. Either way, you better talk fast, because both sides are suspicious of anyone they don't recognize. So anyone visiting here would be well advised to recognize one group from the other so as to tell a convincing story, essentially lie or die. And the last locale we'll visit in Mechanus is Regulus, which is the largest realm of the plane with 64 sectors and each sector houses a single cog. And there are 16 regions, each made up of four sectors. And then four regions make up a quarter. And so every region and quarter has its own ruler. You know, like think um, earls and dukes and whatever. Uh, but supreme controller of the entire Modron race, Primus, rules it all. And yes, that's a title. That supreme root controller of the entire Modron race uh, is a title that Primus is known for uh, or known by. This being's agenda isn't known, but speculation is. It's looking for nothing less than the dominance of the whole multiverse through the application of logic and law. It is a being of supreme logic, able to see through the eyes of any of its subordinates, though it can only command them through the strict chain of communication established an infinity ago. Like I said, like only one, you know, one layer or one division higher or lower than you. So essentially, uh, Primus can only communicate with Modrons in the 14th division. However, it's also been said that Primus is only concerned with the functioning of the cosmos, that the gear god is a power established to watch over the workings of reality. There's no understanding Primus, so there's no understanding the Modrons. To understand a Modron is to become a Modron. To empathize with one is to completely misunderstand it. There's no particular group or people a group ought to look for. There's no individuality among the Modrons to mark them. The most common Modron type folks are likely to run into is the Quadrone, which works in a basic bureaucratic position. Uh, there are guides hovering around outside Regulus, anxious to steer people 
through the realm. The best of these is a Githzerai named Black Pete, who is of a questionable background. But he's smart, and he's tough, and he knows his way around the realm like the back of his hand. Black Pete is, quite simply, the best guide Regulus has. And he knows it. And he charges a minimum 50 gold pieces a day, That, but that comes without guaranteed results. However, if you do want a guarantee, well, that's going to cost you 200 gold pieces. We're going to take a quick break from the lore, go to the middle of the show, do all the middle of the show things. And when we come back, we're going to talk Asheron and Celestia. Welcome to the middle of the show. It's the housekeeping portion of the show. We dig into some homebrew fun. We look at recent D&D news. And of course, we thank all of our patrons and all of our listeners uh, most importantly, thank you so much to everyone listening to the show and an extra special thank you to the patrons over at patreon.com slash DD Lorecast and an extra special shout out to Harlan Reaver, the newest patron. Welcome, welcome to the big show. Uh, Harlan Reaver gets all sorts of fun benefits, including a um, sticker pack, uh, ad free early episodes, bonus episodes, bonus content. Um, merchandise you can also get um invites to the multiverse famous patron roundtable you can also get a D- uh, session of dnd uh dm'd by myself or i will join a um join your existing campaign for a session uh you know maybe i'll maybe i'll dust off old uh, jimmy really rad for uh those uh fumbling four fans out there uh, but yeah you can support the show in that way it's uh, it means the world to us here at the at the Lorecast. Uh, you can also support the show by following us on all the social medias, pretty much any kind of social media. You know, Twitter slash X, um, all of its copycats were were there. We're on Twitch. We're going to start uh, streaming very shortly. Uh, we're on Instagram. We're on TikTok. You can find us at DND Lorecast. Um, and you know, we'll, we'll try to make it a, a fun experience for you. We'll try to post, um, unique content to each of those and, um, you know, and try to make it worth your while, so to speak. As far as D and D news is concerned, um, well, the first step toward the official Dungeons and Dragons virtual tabletop has seemingly been taken. Uh, there will be a link in the show notes, but you can check out, uh, the D and D beyond maps feature that they are now that they have now implemented uh it is behind a paywall it is um it's it's being alpha tested right now they and they said to expect many bugs um but you do have to have uh, a dnd sub to to access it you have to have um you know the the master tier i believe it's called um to do that um which i i i um i am a i'm a, a subscriber myself i really what's the coolest part of of that to, for me is anything that i purchase or anything that is uh that has been purchased on D&D Beyond can be shared within a campaign. So I'm playing uh I'm playing Curse of Strahd with my buddies and any, you know, quote unquote books that I have that I would presumably bring to the table uh can be viewed and used by anyone else also playing the game. Uh and vice versa any books that they have I can use and it so it feels a lot like what it would actually be like playing in real life, a D and D game. So the, for me, that that makes it worth the the price. Um, as far as you know, 
um, what that means moving forward for the virtual tabletop. I my theory is that there's going to be some free, albeit you know, um, sort of curtained off sec, you know, uh, aspect of the service that um, we'll be able to use. But to fully use every feature available, you'll probably have to pay some kind of sub, and it's it's standard in the year of our Lord, Lady Gaga, 2023. It's you know pretty run of the mill. Uh, so there's a link to that if you want to check that out. Uh, as far as the uh, homebrew shenanigans, uh, we got a good one. Well, if you've been listening to the show the past couple of weeks, I've been highlighting uh, several different works from my fellow cohorts that I had, my fellow students, my fellow um, Imagineers that I had when I took a writing workshop with Bard House Media that is run by Jaden King and Beth the Bard, uh, kind of giving us a primer on how to not only write an adventure but also how to publish it and so it's been very exciting being able to see a lot of those finished works and this week's comes from robert sharp it is the technomancer's tower a white brick tower looms in the distance alone in a sea of green trees strange mechanisms wrap the body of the tower and provide a steady hum as you approach could this be where the townsfolk have been disappearing? You approach and find the front door unlocked. Walking inside, a door slams, then disappears, and you find yourself the next victim. A mouse in a trap, designed by a delusional wizard. Will your party become the heroes and escape the tower, or will they fall to the wizard's constructs and puzzles? What secrets lie here in the Technomancer's Tower? This is very cool. This is a fun take on a dungeon, your basic, you know, old fashioned run of the, you know, you know, get back to the D and D roots dungeon crawl. Uh, it's designed for level three heroes has a neutral setting. So you can plug it into an existing campaign or you can run it as a one shot. Um, you'll have to, you know, work your way through tricky puzzles, survive mechanical monstrosities to escape uh, meanwhile, you'll also be discovering the tragic tale of the wizard inside. So I love this. I love the, you know, it's the mechanics of the old school, like D&D dungeon crawl, like check. Plus, like, you know, the narrative of, you know, more like, you know, what what 5e is more known for, you know, the the story of it all. Uh, I love it. I, it. I think it's great. A link in the show notes. Take it, you know, take it for a spin. It's only three ninety nine. You know, run it with uh, run it as a one shot with your buddies, like you know, your your local D and D group, and support a newfound creator all at the same time. That being said, let's jump back to the planes of law. <laughs> Hello and welcome back. We are pouring over the lore. For the planes of law, we have already talked about Canis. We've already talked Arcadia. We've already I explained at the top of the show. We're not going to talk about Bator this episode. We have given plenty of time and plenty of love to the to the nine layers, the nine levels of hell over the, our summer series. So we're skipping Bator, uh, but all that's left is Asheron and Celestia. So let's go ahead and just dive right in. Asheron is the home of dreams gone wrong. That lovely quote is attributed to Deva Isab of the Bent Wing. 
The iron shod battle planes of Asheron are the most lawful of the evil planes, bridging the gap between the highly organized and evil realms of Vator and the ultimate organization of the clock disks of Mechanus. The plane is home to those who inflict evil almost as an afterthought between the desire for organization and order. The underlying laws and order of Asheron all serve conformity and evil, and evil thrives in war. The plane's laws and strict organization force all creatures to do battle. Give fiends the power of life and death, and soon there's going to be nothing but a wasteland. And that's exactly what Asheron is. Hope and decency are in short supply here. So Asheron is divided into four layers, and each layer stressing order over evil, the group over any single soldier. Only the first layer is thickly inhabited, um, and even that's kind of a stretch. After all, Asheron isn't really made to support life. Each layer consists of an enormous of enormous iron cubes floating in an uh, almost like an airy void. Cubes that do collide with each other in these and produce these like jarring, echoing blows, like the ring of swords in battle. Uh, the cubes themselves are pitted and scarred with craters, cracks, and dents, you know, from all of those collisions. Though in an orderly plane, such as Asheron, the cube always is crushed or fractured along straight lines and at right angles. It's, I mean, like it's, it's a place of complete order. I mean, not even weeds grow here. You know, few creatures are powerful enough to survive the plane by themselves. And so, and those that do deserve a wide berth you put respect on their names because if they can survive asheron pretty sure they can survive your little magic missile all right so the four layers avalus thundenen tentibulus ocanthus none of them are pleasant or easy to pronounce uh but most agree that the lower you get you know the worse it gets the three lower layers are nearly abandoned uh, wastelands, devastated and shattered ground, worse than the festering layers of the abyss. In abyss, at least, you know, the, the garbage, the manure, the rot, at least gives rise to compost and strange new growths. Not so in Asheron. Here, the lower la- layers are sterile and barren. So Avalus, also called the battle plains, it's the topmost layer of the plain. Uh, the cubes of Avalus collide every week, with booming crashes that echo throughout the plane. The cubes are huge, ranging from city-sized to even kingdom-sized. Again, anything but the metric system. Uh, New cubes sometimes appear, but they are void of one edible food. And also, they're dangerous during these collisions because since they're fresh and unmarked, there are no craters or tunnels to hide in during those collisions. Thus, most inhabitants avoid these cubes, at least until you know they've been through a few of the collisions and get a little bit pockmarked. Um, although being on an older cube isn't much safer, as any structure caught in a collision is immediately destroyed, and tunnel collapses are all too common. Some locales include the Blue Cube, named so for the pale halo of flickering light which surrounds it. A particularly powerful cube, surrounded by evil spirits chained to its iron core, 
Those who step onto the cube die instantly. As a result, there's only one inhabitant, a blue dragon with ragged, tattered wings named Testhor. He has suffered much abuse and desperately wants to leave, but at the end of each day, Teslo suffers from total amnesia. So to combat this, he has began, uh, he started etching notes into the Iron Cube itself, which he reads each day to remind himself of his, of his history, his enemies, and his attempts to escape. It's like D&D meets that movie, Fifty First Dates. So Teslor ha- was brought here after he gathered too much power for himself in the realm of resounding thunder. In his spare time, Teslor gathers an enormous static charge into himself for his lighting, lightning breath weapon. And by charging, by drawing one charge into himself, of course, Teslor creates an opposite charge in the cube, which is what gives it, you know, its bluish hue. Another lovely vacation spot in, uh, is the realm of Nishrek, where the powers in charge are those of the Orcish pantheon. Seems like an utter delight. Uh, the strong rule and the weak must die for the good of all. That which does not kill makes one stronger. Goblins are made to die at the hands of their betters. When the legions strike together, all opposition trembles and disappears. In all tenets of the Orcish mindset. This is the center of the Orcish pantheon's military efforts and also the site of constant fights over dominance. The realm is scored with four deep trenches to protect its side and two more across the center uh, to form a cross, and these connect with similar similar trenches at the cube's edge. The lowest rank of orc lives within these trenches in, I, and I use the term loosely, towns that are built from pretty much whatever, like ruined helmets, uh, beams from siege machinery, goblin bones, uh, you know, like who, like who doesn't, you know, do a little DIY, you know, uh, home renovation and use goblin bones. It's just practical. Uh, ghouls and worse haunt the dark lower passages of these trench, ready to devour orcs who wander about alone. Orcs and their allies, like ogres, sometimes yugoloths, are the only creatures tolerated here. And the last spot we'll touch on is resounding thunder. This is where Teslo gained too much power, and as a result, the Duke of Thunder, a fellow by the name of Lai Kung, who rules the locale absolutely and without question, uh, ended up trapping the dragon on the blue cube. The realm revolves around Kung's slightest whim, and he resides in what's known as the Firecracker Palace. It is a fortress, a scriptorium, and an archive. Uh, I had to look up scriptorium. It's basically where you like monks usually um like copy stuff down, which is pretty much it's the most D&D thing I've ever heard in my life. Uh the streets are paved with these dark red bricks and bright green lanterns light its streets. Petitioners are bounty hunters, mercenaries, executioners, and others who serve the cause of retribution. In fact, the realm is dotted with prisons execution grounds and other sites of punishment sounds delightful uh Thuldanen is the second layer of asheron uh the scrap heap uh for all manner of unusual creations made either through design or by accident the blocks on this plane are all hollow and their surfaces are pockmarked 
with pits which lead down several miles into the interior of the blocks, and they're filled with broken scraps of thousands of devices. I'm pretty sure there's a one of those pits is filled with old Atari ET games. Uh, no natives on this layer other than the hidden realm of Duggar living in towns with names such as Cold Ember and Hope Glimmer and Forge Gloom. Just sound, they sound like really delightful places. Uh, but visitors from the top of the layer often come down in hopes of finding some treasure amongst the trash. Um, what I sound like, you know, maybe um, like thrift store shopping or like a state sale shopping garage sale sort of thing. Uh, Tintibulus is the third layer. It's a place filled with blocks of many regular shapes, uh, six-sided, eight-sided, 12-sided, and so on. So what you're telling me is that Tintibulus is a layer filled with D&D dice. I am here for it. Let's hear more about it. Maybe I'll change my mind because it might sound terrible. But so far, it sounds amazing. So they're solid throughout and made of gray volcanic stone. So when collisions occur, the stone fractures along the natural fault lines and create huge hexagons of various dimensions on the surface. The layer has no native life, but the emptiness often attracts magical researchers. One such figure is the Hopping Mage who lives in the Hopping Tower. Once a master of wild magic, he is now a powerful priest who serves a nameless, faceless power of travelers, theft, and darkness. Okay, that doesn't sound too bad. That doesn't sound too bad at all. Like, I could... I mean, you're telling me like I could live on a D20 and there's no one there except for a uh, you know, powerful priest who serves a nameless, faceless power? I could th- definitely think of worse. Uh, the final layer of Asheron has no blocks, only these razor-thin shards, some barely an inch across and others a mile in width. These are enormous shards of black ice frozen into thin layers that then get broken into progressively smaller shards with each collision, eventually into needles and then dust. So yeah, the final layer of Asheron, Ocanthus, is indeed a death trap. Some claim that the shards are first chipped from the night black bottom of the layer. It's covered by a single sheet of infinite magical black ice. The mage Lysander says that that sheet of ice at the bottom of the layer is the source of the final destination of the river Styx, and that every memory stolen by the river still exists there, frozen in the black ice. The only creatures able to survive this layer easily are the bladelings. These are metal-hued humanoids with purple eyes that glitter like ice and are covered in uh, like these sharp metallic spines. And these creatures make their home in Zoronor, the city of shadows. And lastly, but not leastly, let's talk Celestia. Someone who comes to Mount Celestia for easy answers to his trouble is, well, he's clueless. Good in law may be lots of things, but they ain't easy. That quote comes from a paladin of the Order of the Eternal Sun. The single sacred mountain of Mount Celestia rises from an infinite sea of holy water to heights barely visible and utterly 
incomprehensible. The whole plane is the ideal model of justice, kindness, and order, of celestial grace and inhuman mercy, where the watchfulness of many eyes holds the ramparts against evil. It's one of the few places on the planes in the, in the entire multiverse where one can truly let their guard down. Mount Celestia is the heavenly home of the best and the brightest petitioners, the paradise that all others would conquer only if they could. At least that's if you live there, that's what you that's what you seem to think. One can't pay a visit without hearing a sermon about its virtues. All petitioners are striving to reach their own goals, to perfect perfect themselves and help others to do the same. Of course, not everyone wants to be perfected, at least not all at once. Here's the place to live in joy and harmony, but only if you can stand the discipline and the embrace and then embrace the plane's ideals. Mount Celestia is a promise too, a promise of betterment and ultimate union with the powers of goodness and law for those that are worthy enough to climb the plane's path through the six portals to the heavenly city and then into the illuminated heaven. For many, the path of Mount Celestia is too demanding, and they eventually fade and wither, wander away entirely, or fling themselves as heroic sacrifices against the invading fiends, or the Modrons, or even others. Their sacrifice is honored by the survivors, for even these uh, deaths have their place on Mount Celestia, creating martyrs as, as examples of the order and majesty of the plane. Only the elect are permitted onto the heights of the mountain, for Mount Celestia is a place of marvels that most creatures couldn't bear to look upon. If Mechanus is the home of the laws and machinery of the Great Ring, Mount Celestia is the guardian of its spirit. It is largely the domain of the Archons, but many planers have settled in its secure valleys. A group known as Tome Archons are the higher-ups for the plane, and they make up a council known as the Hebdomad. Archons choose paths the, you know, the way they breathe. It comes to them naturally. An Archon can't advance to the higher levels of Mount Celestia and thus the higher forms of Archon without succeeding in one or more paths. Once one chooses a path, they're obliged to stay on it until they reach the next mountain where then they can then choose a new path. Uh, and really quickly, the eightfold path increases charisma by one. The path of five virtues, uh, you gain a plus one to strength. And the path of valor does the same for your PC's deck score. The path of renunciation and the path of mystic union increase constitution and wisdom respectively by one. And lastly, the path of Gnosis helps boost intelligence by one. Not every Archon succeeds in its quest to follow a path. Some fail spectacularly. A failure in Bator, in Hell, means pain and suffering. But in Celestia, they are given a second chance. Maybe even a third or fourth. Uh, sometimes up to a dozen. Chaotic-leaning Archons become Asuras, you know, lesser proxies of chaotic powers, while Archons who show the taint of evil are banished from Celestia to the prime material plane or to Sigil or elsewhere. So Mount Celestia consists of seven layers or tiers and 
each of them at, at the same time is its own mountain or series of mountains and also at the same time merely a higher point on the one spectacular mountain that is celestia each is separated from the layer below by a thin bank of clouds or mists and somehow the top of mount celestia is faintly visible even from the shores at the bottom of the first layer how this is possible is a question for uh, for the graybeards and for the long-winded philosophers but the fact is the light of the illuminated heaven is what keeps many striving for the top so the layer closest to the astral plane lunia also known as the silver heaven uh, it somewhat resembles the astral, and those entering always find themselves in the surf of an ocean. The ocean itself is fresh, clean water that burns undead like holy water would, and Zoveria, which is a species of aquatic humanoid native to the lair, ensures that no one actually drowns, at least no one that, should, that shouldn't drown drowns, you know, they'll... With, within reason, I guess. Uh, a couple of cool locales, uh, like the town of Heart's Faith, where the dogs don't growl, children never scream, elders are respected, and no one locks their doors or bars their windows. Uh, kind of sounds like uh, like my grandpa talking about how, talking about the good old days. So apparently the good old days were Lunia. Um, another realm is known as Nectar of Life, which sometimes becomes the location of Bahamut's Palace. You know, while it's traveling between the layers, uh, it is a serene and quiet land with a few forests, uh, coastal region waterfalls, and roads lined with small shrines to saints and patrons of travels. The largest town is Amriel, whose biggest library, Katsub Dharma, is a series of halls lined with nothing but volume after volume of lore. Sounds Awesome. I need to get, I need a Google map, um, how to get from Texas to Omriel, um, stat. Uh, the second heaven is Mercuria, the golden heaven, and is a place of thin air and high hopes. It is the armory and mustering ground of the seven heavens. Uh, the noblest of fighters rest eternally within great tombs and mausoleums where their deeds are honored during the annual day of memory which is a feast day that is organized by the Sword Archons. Bahamut's palace, while technically existing simultaneously on the first four layers, and no one ever figured out how that sneaky little dragon did that, um, but it's almost always visible on Mercuria, unlike the other layers. And this glittering wonder is built entirely from the great dragon lord's treasure hoard. Um, and if you want more information on this fancy pants dragon, check out episode 134, where we discuss Bahamut. Uh, Venya, the pearly heaven, is the third layer, home to the gods of the halflings. It is lit by a soft white glow, almost looking like a pearl, hence the name, um, from the airy vault above it. Most of its slopes are terraced fields or carefully tended woodlands, and bare stone is rare in this on this um, on this layer, and most of the mountains wear cloaks of trees, hardy shrubs, and alpine grasses. Even the wilderness is green and soft, consist consisting of verdant moors, scrublands, and alpine meadows. While you got uh, coal and quarry stones are common, 
where uh, here one will find the green fields. And while one might think that's simply another name for Venya itself, most people know better. At least those um, who travel the multiverse know better. Green fields is a realm unto itself, a place where crops never fail, where the weather rains mild almost every day, and where plentiful harvests are as common as robbery is in Sigil. There are no large predators, and while there are your garden variety, garden pests, you know, like possums and moles and whatnot, uh, they don't reduce the harvest by much. Sounds delightful. And I mean that sincerely, not in the very cynical, sarcastic way I meant about previous planes. This actually uh, sounds uh, utterly delightful. Uh, it kind of sounds like the Shire from Lord of the Rings. Uh, so Solania, the Electrum Heaven, is the fourth layer and is home of the Dwarven Pantheon and has the solid, earthy, comforting embrace of a warm fireside. Solania is blessed by a sky that shines with the glow of a burnished silver. This is a mountainous region whose valleys are shrouded in luminescent fogs and mists. Its peaks, which provide access to the next layer, are usually occupied by monasteries, the greatest of them being the realm of Quan Yin. These edifices are often the destination of interplanar pilgrims seeking answers to questions of creation, of toil, of enchantments. Sadly, the answers rarely satisfy them, for there are no shortcuts here. The first monastery of the Plains Militant can be found here as well, said to be the source of all paladin's power, as well as the repository of their battle lore. It's a five-story building, half a mile long, with hundreds of rooms inside. It is also the home of the Soul Forge, the birthplace of the dwarves, where their seven fathers were forged and where Moradin breathes life into each dwarf. The forge itself is a 40-foot towering block of mithril next to a pool of molten soul fire and behind or in front of a wall of pure ice. The oversized tools of the forge are lined up on soft leather hides nearby and are infused with the spirits of ancient dwarf craftsmen who help guide the tools. But be careful, uh, because a careless onlooker is likely to be picked up and then hammered into proper, that is, dwarven shape, uh, and then shipped off to the prime material plane. <laughs> That's got like some Looney Tunes energy to it. Uh, like, you know, Daffy Duck is not paying attention, then gets picked up by something and turns into a dwarf. Mershon, the fifth peak of Mount Celestia, has a sky similar to Solania's, though its silver burns even brighter, hence the name the Platinum Heaven. In fact, undead take damage just being here. Mershon's known regions are great sweeping plains dominated by citadels and huge spherical black domes. Tall as small mountains, the tops of these spheres provide access to the next layer. Uh, here you'll find the town of Imperia, which is also known as the City of Tempered Souls. Best known for its healers and hospitals, for many of the pilgrims are injured in transit to the city from the fourth mountain. Imperia is built on the edge of a mountain lake, cold and clear, and the view from its towers is one that is breathtaking. 
Empyrea is also the site of many healing fountains and curative waters. It can restore withered limbs, restore speech and sanity, and even restore lost life levels to those poor schmucks drained by the undead. That's undead draining life levels is not a 5e thing. I think it should be because it's awesome. It makes undead even more frightening. Um, but I digress. It's an advanced D&D sec- uh, thing. Uh, so rumor has it that excessive use of the healing waters of Imperia also purifies the mind, healing it of evil and chaos. The exact effects haven't been tested by the Fraternity of Order or the Brethren, though the Harmonium is said to be carrying barrels by the cartload to its training camps in Arcadia for an experimental program. Renfa, the city of the sands of time, is a curious place where time flows strangely, backwards, forwards, even sideways, as the seasons roll from summer to spring to winter, then back to spring. Uh, temperatures and growing seasons are odd as well, you know, because they can't really keep track of it. And the layers archons are responsible for watching over fertility, night, day, constellations, birth, disease, and death essentially all the aspects of time and change just to keep things in order, I guess, or try to as much as possible. Uh, Part of the reason for this strange behavior is its gate to the demiplane of time. The main archon in charge, a fellow by the name of Donathiel takes his duties only half seriously for he doesn't understand the importance of the city. He is, in fact, being very subtly manipulated by the renegade Modron Secundus. This Modron's merest hints are enough to cause a panic among the courtiers. He seems to enjoy throwing things into confusion briefly just to see how others will respond. This lair is also home to Sequed Hezi, which is also known as the City of Swords. Evil, blasphemy, and injustice must be sought out and destroyed is what you would see, like, you know, visit lovely Soquethesi, the City of Swords. Um, that's what you would see on the on the travel guide. Uh, truly repentant converts are a delight to the crusader, but a stubborn evil must be burnt out, lest it go to seed and sow disaster elsewhere. Take no prisoners. Justice must prevail. Um, this place sounds tiresome and maddening. <laughs> Um, and fine, uh, not finally, the sixth heaven, we got seven heavens after all, Jovar, the glittering heaven, uh, also referred to as the heaven of gems, for few have seen it. It consists of a celestial vault whose floor and ceiling are lined with great rubies and garnets, pulsing with a healthy hearth fire glow. More archons than anywhere else are found here. And they, as a result, they have their entire city, an entire city of their own, Yetzirah, which is also known as the Heavenly City. Visible from hundreds of miles away, the sparkling lights of the Heavenly City never dim. It is serene and also boisterous, wise yet innocent. The city of Yetzirah has passed beyond most people's understanding, beyond comprehension, to, to awe. All actions are enlightened. And enlightenment is the goal of all actions. Justice can be severe or tempered with mercy, and mercy itself may be a kindness or a vice. Intentions are everything. Purity is all-consuming, 
and the shining beacon of its souls puts out the eyes of unbelievers. The city is ruled by a rumored council of throne archons, those higher-ups, uh, no more than a whisper on the foul lips of uh, Sigil, and no more than a dream in the depths of the abyss. They sit in an unending ziggurat on this lair. Some say that the sole access of the seventh to the seventh heaven is hidden within the ziggurat, while others claim the bridge of Al-Selha, made of pure light and guarded by a solar named Zorona, leads there as well. And if you thought the City of Swords seemed gnarly, you know, the the place that was all like, you know, like, take no prisoners, justice must prevail. Yeah, they've got about a thousand sword archons. Uh, the heavenly city is defended by an active core of 12,000 sword archons. Uh, hopefully they're not as like blowhardy as the city of swords archons. Those guys do not seem fun. And finally, finally, Kronios, the illuminated heaven. So the true nature of Kronios is secretive, is unknown. For anyone who unlocks the sealed portal to this highest level of Mount Celestia does not return. Why is that? I, because they don't want to. They've, they've achieved perfection in the greatest place in the multiverse. So why would you leave? Or or maybe they just maybe there's a, a, a goblin there, a giant goblin that just eats you up in one bite. I don't know. I, the, no one knows this lore. And, and the fact that I don't know drives me mad. <laughs> Um, the governors know about it only because Zafkiel, the Tome Archon of Mysteries and ruler of the Hebdomad, he goes there and returns. That's the only reason that they know that you can, like you can it's a place, because he, he goes there and then he comes back. Uh, some diviners say that their magics reveal the seventh heaven as a place of pure joy and oneness with the powers, a place where sorrow cannot enter a place to leave bards speechless and sages sightless. Some of them are probably just faking it and have no more idea than anyone else. But as long as they spin a good tale, someone will pay them for their trouble. So there you have it, folks. The Plains of Law. Uh, I can't, I'm so excited for Planescape to come out. Uh, here in a couple of weeks, and I'm so excited to be getting a chance to go through uh, the old material again. Uh, join us in a couple of weeks. We'll be talking about the Plains of Chaos. Uh, and then, of course, next week we have our Multiverse Famous Patron Roundtable. We'll be discussing the topic of AI in D&D as well as TTRPGs in general. You know, the good, the bad, and definitely the ugly. So uh, check us out next week. We thank you so much for joining us, for allowing us into your life for this short amount of time. And we hope that we uh, that you uh, allow us to do so again in the future. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Sergio. Fare thee well, dear listener. And until we meet again, may all your 20s be natural. Thank you for listening to the Dungeons & Dragons Lorecast. If you've enjoyed the show, consider following us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at D&D Lorecast or jumping into the Robots Radio Discord to chat more with us about Dungeons and Dragons. We'll see you soon. You've been listening to a Robots Radio podcast. Smart shows for interesting people. Check
check out all the shows at robotsradio.net.